Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. This is uh, Leanne Nguyen, your host for the hour, welcoming you from New York City. Um, I really thank you for taking me into your life, into your consciousness for this one hour. And I'm very glad that you're taking up my invitation to reflect on the question of what it means to be human. As you know, um, those of you who have been making contact with me on this question uh, for the past year, this question is very important to me. <laughs> and you know, um, you know, by, by now, I hope that the conversations have created some opening in you. Uh, I hope that they have awakened in you some awareness, however uneasy or appreciative, of what it takes to be human, to, to be engaged with life, with one another, to cherish the gifts and challenges of this human existence, to what, what it takes, you know, to inhabit the wounds of existence and then extract the gold of purpose and connection from these wounds. Because to be human is to be wounded. What distinguishes us humans from animals is how we live out our wounds, how we let our wounds shape us. The defense mechanisms, the meaning making that comes of it, the ethics of being that are born of the things that unravel us or split us open. That's what makes us human. That's my view on this show. Uh, the musician and, and poet Leonard Cohen, when he was still alive, remarked that there is a crack in everything. That's how the light enters. And centuries ago, the poet and, and prophet Rumi said it even better, I think. The wound is where the light enters. What distinguishes us from one another Murderers from lovers, patients from therapists, the faithless from believers, humans from animals, is how we let the light enter into our wounds. What kind of light, if any, we seek out and allow in through the cracks of our soul. I'm fascinated by this process of letting the light enter, as you can gather. It's part of my livelihood to tend to people's wounds. I get to see how people live out their woundedness, and I try my best to help them seize on the light and hold on to it. But I'm also preoccupied with this process because it seems that we as a nation, as a species, as a culture right now are in a particularly wounded place. There is so much woundedness around and there's so much wounding that we inflict onto one another out of this woundedness in America. At any moment that we're wounded by anything, anyone, we can choose to let the light enter or we can choose to seal it shut with hate and fear. And that choice determines the fate of the wound. It determines how we live on. 
you know, the first time that I personally directly uh, grasped the saying of Rumi was on 9-11-2001. I have shared with you on and off on the show what flashed through my mind on that morning when I saw the smoke in the sky and watched people running back into Brooklyn from lower Manhattan. Um, you know, I had flashes of myself as a child running through the streets in Saigon in April 1975 with my mother, you know, as the tanks were rolling through and shots were being fired um, and belongings were scattered all over the streets. Um, and I, I, I had that 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 thought, which I will share with you shortly, again in the days that followed in Manhattan, as I watched people wander around in the streets holding up and crying while holding up pictures of lost loved ones. I thought to myself, now America knows what it is like. Now we have a chance. Now there is a chance that America will be with the rest of the world. And I can feel at home in this country because America now is like my country, wounded, torn up, humbled, on her knees, and made strong and beautiful through survival and reliance on each other's love. I didn't know of uh, Rumi's saying back then, but my reaction was along that line. My reaction was a prayer to America, for America, backed up by the saying of the Sufi prophet from many centuries ago who came from the continent where the men behind the attack came from. My prayer was that, please let the light enter through this terrible wound. And I have stated since then clearly my view that America did not let the light enter. The wound did not have the chance to become light, purpose, life. The wound led to hatred, death, brute force, divisiveness. The wound of 9-11 led to Afghanistan, Iraq, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, and so on, and so on, and so on. The light did not enter. Instead, we have America in 2018. Now, you can dispute the causal connection that I have just made. You can argue that 9-11 did not cause what is happening right now at the southern border of this country, where a billion-dollar prison industry is booming to accommodate the detention of illegal aliens. Aliens. You can argue that the wound of 9-11 has nothing to do with the annihilation of lives by drone attacks or the destruction of young lives in immigration courts. You can argue with me about a causal links, but you cannot argue with me about the fact that America, some 15, 16 years after 9-11, is a dark, wounded, terrible place. The light did not enter. Where is the light when we put toddlers in jail away from their mothers and drag them, these babies that are two years of age, into the courtroom to interrogate them on their own via interpreter in order to determine what to do with them? What to do with these babies that we have snatched away from their parents and now keep languishing in foster care because they came to our border with no legal, quote-unquote, legitimate papers? Well, The legal part, I can understand. They have no legal papers. But legitimate is where the crack lies, where the light of recognition and humanity can be detected in terms of how we determine and react to the legitimacy of the wounds and needs of these other alien human beings. 
anyway, the light has not entered in America. There is little light in how we in America are tending to the cracks of our national border of our collective psyche. There is little light right now in how we're tending to one another, in our speech acts towards one another, in our policies, in how we spend our dollars, in whom we prize as our allies and heroes, and in what we choose to protect of our world. We're wounded as a nation, and we're good at wounding. That is a basic law of trauma. The wounded wound, and the wounding reveals who we are inside the wound. And the wounding determines who we become after the wound. Look at yourself. Look through the history of your own wounds, and you should see this trajectory. Look at this country since the wound of 9-11, and how America has responded to that wound, and you should understand who she is and has become, has come to be where she is now. The wounding that we perpetrate out of our fearfulness and woundedness has consequences, though. I'm saying something very obvious, but it needs to be said. When we inflict wounding out of woundedness, we inflict our fear and pain and darkness onto other real human lives. This is how fear and hurt get recycled and handed around. Last week, in a conversation with a fellow child psychologist, we talked about how America right now is behaving like a child whose development has been derailed. And my guest, who had worked extensively with traumatized children and had also consulted with the um, 9-11 Memorial Museum team, I asked her to speculate about how, about what kind of experiences, you know, and failures um, that may explain why we are currently, as a nation, so divided and so impoverished. Um, and she named immediately 9-11 as the original trauma that started it all, as the wounding that set us down this path where the social fabric is torn, where hurt prevents us from using our intelligence and compassion and where fear and anger keep us blind to one another's vulnerability. There's a real price to this, a price to ourselves, to our growth, our character, a price to our capacity for strength and tenderness. But I don't want us to also neglect that there's also a price to real lives. People are hurt because of what we do. Real lives are obliterated when we react to our national wounds in a destructive way. Do we see that? Do we want to look at that? Learn something from that? One of the original wounding that we, America, committed in reaction to being wounded was Guantanamo Bay, you know, the offshore prison, I mean, sorry, detention facility that we opened to detain people, men, mostly from the Middle East, whom we suspect to be terrorists and enemies of America. They were, some of them are still husbands, sons, brothers in their human life, butchers, truck drivers, students, teachers in their human life, their former human life. And they were caught in America's war against terror and came to live in Guantanamo. You know, the popular Netflix show, Orange is the New Black, I keep thinking of these men in Guantanamo as the original men in Orange. We have forgotten, I think, about these men, these orange jumpsuits. There may be a generation of school children now who do not know that Guantanamo exists, that 
these men are still there. And those who have been released, don't you dare celebrate that they now enjoy freedom and vindication. I'm not sure that those who have been released from Guantanamo have been able to re-enter humanity. I don't want to forget about these wounded men. Also, I want to keep learning about us. Us, we who are who were wounded and are now doing the wounding. I want to know what happens to our act of wounding. I want to know how these men live, how they manage to stay alive, to remain human, if they have managed. So that is why I asked Pardis to come on today to, uh, to join me in conversation. My guest today is maybe one of the few, very few people on earth who can tell us firsthand about these men in Guantanamo Bay. One of the few people in the world who can take up my question about what happens to the humanity of these human beings who got caught up in the wounding of America, who can reflect for me on how these human beings hold on to their humanity in the face of unspeakable loss and dehumanization. So please welcome my guest. She is Pardis Cabriai. She is a senior attorney at a place uh, in New York City <laughs> called Center for Constitutional Rights. And um, I don't know if those of you out there in the world know about this place or her work. Uh, hopefully you will find out. But they they are right there in the trenches. And Pardis, in, in her capacity as senior attorney, has been working with these men in Guantanamo, uh, serving as their lawyer, um, among other things. And she's been doing that for over a decade because they're still there. So, uh, Padis agreed to uh, to take, uh, you know, a, an hour off her time, her busy schedule to come on and talk to me, talk to us. So, uh, welcome, Padis, to, uh, to the Thank show. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm very glad that you're here. And and uh, let me jump right in um, because, you know, the hour will fly by. When I mentioned mm-hmm. the word, you know, the orange jumpsuits and men in Guantanamo, what comes to mind for you? Who, who are they to you now, all these years later? Mm-hmm. You've been flying down there, right, talking to them. Mm-hmm. And what, what or who are they to you? Right. Um I mean, when you were saying that, and I was thinking of just the images that we in the public know of Guantanamo, I was thinking of the the distance um, between us and them and what that has to do with why the prison continues to persist 16 years later. So the jumpsuits you're talking about, I don't know, kids of mine, you know, they were 2002, 2003, 2004, all we knew of Guantanamo were men huddled on their knees wearing goggles, um, in shackles, uh, ski masks, you know, just these nameless, faceless figures. Um, mm-hmm. And the government would occasionally float a mugshot of, you know, one of the so-called worst of the worst, some person, you know, um, some person, Kelly Sheikh Mohammed was the typical picture that was sort of floated in the media, and he sort of became the face of the nearly 800 men who were held there at one time. So... Um, I guess I've just been thinking a lot. I was thinking a lot as you were talking, and, and it it's just um, continues to be present in my work. Just the the distance and the remove between the public and and them, and what that mm-hmm. has to do with why they're still there. Um, mm-hmm. The secret. Why are they there? Used to surround the prison. Um, so today there are forty men who remain. Um, most of them being held without charge. Uh, 
the government's um, the government's position is that the United States continues to be in a war with terrorism, with Al Qaeda, and and unnamed, um, unspecified, constantly morphing associated groups that started in uh, 2001 and that continues in 2018 and that may continue for another generation. And their legal position anyway is that under, in wartime, under the laws of war, you can capture and hold um, people you deem to be enemies for as long as the fighting continues. Um, so that is their legal position, that we're still at war, that the fighting continues, that these are enemies of the United States, and that the, the government can continue to hold them for as long as it says we are at war. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's clear at this point that these are men, the 40 men who remain, the government intends to hold, this administration anyway, intends to hold for as long as it is um, in power. And it's made statements in court that if the fighting were to continue for 100 years, uh, it would have the legal authority to continue holding them for that long. Right. I mean, as a lay person, my immediate reaction is, so there are two problems with that. But one is, what is the war that we're fighting? It seems so global, so amorphous by now, right? Mm-hmm. And two is, mm-hmm. are these men then considered fighters, soldiers of that mm-hmm. uh amorphous war like well, where mm-hmm. is the definitional line here is that part of the problem what 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 war are we talking about at this point yeah. you know and right i mean i think there's um there's the question right of what is the war now what was it back then what are we talking about today um who's defining it i mean what mm-hmm. what law is applying here um mm-hmm. You know, the war today, the United States, you know, has troops in many, many countries. It's engaged in active operations, active combat in half a dozen different countries um, against ISIS, against, you know, remnants of Al-Qaeda, against the Taliban. There's a, there's a problem, a legal problem, I think a, a security problem, um, you know, uh, with the way the United States has defined war against terrorism in this global, unbounded way, unbounded geographically, um, unbounded in terms of groups, and really unbounded in terms of the definition of who you can hold. So there is all of that. But even if you assume all of that, assume war, assume that it is lawful and secure and we're okay with the implications of global endless war. Um, the other problem for the men who remain is that the government's position and conception of them and, and the law doesn't allow for change, for change circumstances. So the argument we're making in court today is let's assume the government is fine and right with respect to its legal positions on armed conflict and, and all of that. Um, how long, how long is it going to hold these men? How, mm-hmm. how long does the law permit them to hold these men? What room is there for changed circumstances in the world and namely changed circumstances for them individually? I represent a man, you know, who's been at Guantanamo since 2004, has been in U.S. custody since 2002. It's 16 years. He was in his 20s when he was captured. He's been tortured. He is a man in his mid-40s today. Um, Very different. I mean, there are problems with 
right, the, the basis for his initial capture, but even assuming that the government could hold him for some mm-hmm. period of time, the problem today for him and for many other men is they are, it is, it is a different time. They are different people. The world is, a, is in a different place. And this idea that um, there's no room to consider change circumstances um, and yeah. give them a second chance and that the, the only answer is to incarcerate, to imprison them, potentially for their lives, is, is the real problem um, that we're trying to raise in court and also just on a, on a common sense level uh, talk about as, as one of the main problems with Guantanamo right now, with what we're doing. Yeah. We're, we're basically incarcerating people we have tortured um, and we can talk about that, tortured, incarcerating them, have held them mostly without charge for 16 years and plan to hold them indefinitely and potentially for life. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a life sentence, life imprisonment yeah. of people we brutally, we brutalized. Right. And, and, and the legal basis for that of, is... is- the legal basis for that is what you are trying to fight against, uh, among other things. Right. We need to break right now very briefly, Pardis, and when we come back, I want to ask you to, to educate us a little bit about what you're trying to do for them, you know, as a lawyer. But most importantly, we're going to get into what what you see of, of how they live and, and what kind of work you actually do with them in the human context. Sure. Okay, so we'll be right back. Short break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Do you think about what you really want? Are you looking to change or perfect your environment, your value, your life? We can help. Tune in to Everyday News with the Blantons. Hosted by husband and wife team Mark and Dr. Latasha Blanton, our program will help you find the answers to make the changes in your life with inspiring guests that can help you find your sense of place in the world and how you view it. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to On Living. 
To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. So, Pradis, these men are not American citizens. They have nothing, no money, no rights, nothing, and they're held in a prison, an American-run prison. And you are an American-trained lawyer. So, you take them on as clients, pro bono, correct? (laughs) That must be a large bill, otherwise over 15 years. (laughs) So can you tell us in a nutshell without, you know, getting entangled in the legalities and so on, the, the details, what is it that as their lawyer, what are you trying to do for them? And how is, how is the, how, how's the work going? <laughs> what kind of progress do you think? Yeah. Um, you know, it's changed a lot in terms of what lawyers have been able to do. When I first started um, at CCR at the Center for Constitutional Rights and made my first trip down to Guantanamo, um, the right of men to habeas corpus, to go to the basic right to just go to court and ask the government to show its reasons for holding them and to be able to present that their defense was still in question. Um, so it wasn't until 2008 that six years after Guantanamo first opened and after men had been held, they'd been in detention for six years just without charge, just holding for that long before the Supreme Court said they actually just have the very basic right of challenging, legally challenging the basis for their detention. Um, So when I was going down, there was, it was still the Bush administration. When I first went down, the Bush administration, still no clear right to habeas. And we were really at that time dealing with really palpable torture, Um, you know, actively conditions that men were being held in. At the time, most men were being held in solitary confinement, um, not unlike the conditions that thousands and thousands of prisoners in the United States are held in, in supermax prisons here in the mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that at the time. And, you know, sort of a tangent here, I, when I first went to Guantanamo, I thought it was an aberration. I thought it was very exceptional in the way that the United States was treating people there. And it took some time and prison visits to prisons in the United States to, to understand that actually m- much of the blueprint for prisons for the, the facility in Guantanamo came from federal supermax mm-hmm. prisons and, and state prisons here in the United States. <laughs> and so by the way, you know, as, as, as an aside, there was a study on prison conditions, so on, and American prisons far surpassed mm-hmm. like the old Soviet prisons, you know, in terms of the practice that we hold, by the way, in 21st mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. Okay, go on. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, the first man that I met had been in solitary for years. Um, I sat down as a younger lawyer, um, first time to a federal prison. It was a military prison, first time anywhere like there. And I sat down sort of naively with an agenda and a notebook and some legal papers and <laughs> trying to talk mm-hmm. to him about his case. And, um, and, you know, that we were waiting for this decision from the Supreme Court. He could barely, he was losing his vision um, because he was spending his days 22 to 24 hours a day in a very small cell, painted white, 
um, sitting so close to the walls because there wasn't enough space that he was losing his vision. I remember, mm-hmm. um, you know, he had to hold the paper, the legal documents, up to his eyes really close to try to read them. Um, his concentration was absent. Um, there were so many physical barriers in terms of his health and the damage that had been done to him. And then just, you know, just imagine, you know, an American trained lawyer coming into a meeting room, someone who's been held for six years in Guantanamo, who has every reason to distrust someone from the United States coming in. So there were all kinds of barriers, but, you know, the first, my first interaction with Guantanamo was really with its torture and the damage that had been done and is being done to people there. Um, over time, you know, in 2008, when the Supreme Court ruled that uh, detainees do, in fact, have the right to challenge their, their detention in court, it was really, there was a lot of momentum. There's a lot of energy. We were doing what lawyers do. We were going down and, you know, inter- getting facts from our clients and building their cases and filing petitions in court. Um, and so there was, there was a moment, um, you know, in 2008 and nine and even a little bit in 10, 2010, where we thought going to court would be the cure that once, um, you know, we were able to present the facts about who they were and challenge the really thin basis, um, the government was presenting for its detentions. And when I say that the legal term is, um, you know, there are different standards of evidence um, in the law and typically for incarceration, for imprisonment, um, you get a, you're entitled to a criminal trial, a criminal proceeding and a jury trial or a trial before a jury or a judge and um, conviction on the basis of um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a very, very high standard. In these proceedings, the standard is much lower. It's called a preponderance of the evidence. And what that literally means mm. is that um, it's just more likely than not that the mm. government's version of the story is true. It's the mm-hmm. same standard that's used in negligence cases, in contracts case cases, civil okay. type cases that don't have anything to do with imprisonment, with deprivation of liberty for years and potentially for life. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the standard we're dealing with. And we thought, going into court that these cases would fall apart. Um, And in fact, they did at the district court level, at the first court level that we went into. Over the years, the appellate court, the higher court above the district courts, overturned um, every single win in these cases and um, established basically a legal regime that made it impossible for detainees to win and for the government to lose. And um, the Supreme Court, for its part, since 2008, has not spoken on Guantanamo again. Um, 2008, when it said detainees have the right to habeas corpus, is the last time it's said anything on Guantanamo and on the rights of men there. Um, And so today, you know, it is legally, the the right to habeas corpus has really become hollowed out. And um, Mm -hmm. I can talk more a little bit later about the new legal challenge we've brought, but um, legal avenues you know, by 2011, we're really kind of shut down. So then the work and my role shifted yet again. And I would say in 2010 and 11, in 2010, um, this was under Obama. There was both the momentum in the courts and also the momentum of a new administration and a new president who said, 
who recognized Guantanamo as shameful and a chapter we needed to close and had issued an executive order on a second day in office saying we're going to close the prison down. Mm -hmm. So we were both on the same page with the administration politically, and we were getting somewhere in the courts, or the courts had not been shut down for us yet. And so there was, like I was saying, momentum and movement, and I actually had some clients released um, in 2009 and 10, uh, father and son who I'd spent years working with were uh, from Syria. They were father and son detained, captured together, detained apart in Guantanamo, held without charge, and ultimately approved for release by the government who said there was no reason to continue holding them, and they were resettled. And so in 2010, after a few years, just four years at that point of doing this work, I felt like... um, you know, uh, I'd had clients released. I'd been doing the work for a few years, and I kind of um, wanted a bit of a break um, from the work. And at that point, legally, things were were turning in the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was saying, the, the appellate court was was sort of um, reversing all of these wins that we had had. Um, I, I stayed in the work. I didn't sort of take a break. But in 2010, and and really for many years afterwards, the work really became for lawyers going down, just um, trying to figure out what to do with our clients. There was really kind of a few years of just stagnation where we, the courts were kind of meaningless for us. Um, the administration and its rhetoric was saying the right thing, but there was no mm. political will, really. Um, Guantanamo fell off, dropped down on sort of the list of priorities for the administration, and it was really not right. exercising any... Um, taking really any action to to actually transfer men, including people who it had approved for transfer. And so for right. a few years, I remember just going down and the work was really about um, just sustaining people and trying to figure out what levers to to push and pull and um, mm-hmm. how to do anything differently than what we'd already been doing for years, you know, in terms of public advocacy in terms of litigation, working with Congress. Um, So we were really kind of scratching our heads for a few years. And it was really only in 2013, and this is, you know, there's a long history here. In 2013, the men themselves sort of took matters into their own hands. This was, you know, they'd been in Guantanamo since 2002. It's 2013. The courts are are basically shut down. The administration, the Obama administration, is not showing any real will in terms of doing anything. And so in 2013, there was a massive hunger strike at the prison um, that was actually triggered by um, religious abuse by guards um, who were handling the men's Korans. And that's Mm. another tangent, just the way Mm -hmm. that faith has both sustained the men there and also been used as a tool to um, degrade them and Mm -hmm. abuse them. Um, But there was a hunger strike that was started. It it sort of spread to cover most of the prison. Um, At its height, I think over 100 men were were on hunger strike. And that is what finally, again, captured public attention and got the administration's attention. And it was only at that point in 2013 that very, very slowly the wheels started turning in the Obama administration and we started seeing some releases through political pressure. Right. Um, Now, you know, as you're describing this long journey, you know, all of this was happening in Washington, D.C. and New York and lawyer's office mm -hmm. and, you know, and so on. 
I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, then in the meantime, in these 10 odd years, how do these men live, right? What, what, what is daily life like for them? Because 10 years is a long time. Can you... Um, At that point, well, today it's been 16 for a lot mm-hmm. of the men, 16 mm-hmm. years. So what um, is the typical day like? Do you know? Do they tell you? Yeah. It's funny. I was just... Um, part, of the, part of what I'm trying to do with the man that I actively represent right now is just... I mean, part of what I have always tried to do is um, use my access to because it is so rare and because there are so few of us who have ever been able to go into Guantanamo and not just get a press tour the way the media gets, but actually mm-hmm. meet with men face-to-face mm-hmm. in meeting rooms, is to try to bring the public as close as I can um, into the room. You know, um, So I was just asking a, a, through writing or through speaking, doing things like this, and so I was just talking to a client I represent about just tell me you know, for the upteenth time what is your day like? How are you spending your time? He's someone who is uh, on hunger strike today. He weighs 108 pounds. He, um, this is the man who is in his mid-40s now, who I was just speaking about a little bit earlier. He's, uh-huh. he's not well. Um, and so, you know, it's, um, it's pretty mind-numbing. I mean, I think it's today Guantanamo, I think, isn't unlike what imprisonment generally is like. I mean, I think um, it's, there's an important connection to make. I mean, you were talking about sort of the original sin of 9-11 and what we've done at Guantanamo. I think it goes further back. I mean, the way the United States incarcerates and imprisons and uses violence and torture against people of color primarily in its own prisons has a long history. And Guantanamo, to me, the more I've done this work, is really connected to how we know to do imprisonment and punishment and torture in our own prisons. Um, so prison, and prison, you know, has been said, it's sort of cliche, prison is, is hell. Um, you know, it's the opposite of what defines us as human, you know, in terms of freedom of movement, freedom of expression, freedom of association. It's sort of the uh, antithetical to all those qualities. So imprisonment generally is that. And I think Guantanamo today has morphed into just in many ways um, on its exterior, it looks just like any other prison in the United States. I think what is unique about it or distinct about it is the history um, Mm. of where, how men were captured, the circumstances under which they were initially held. Many were held in CIA secret black sites and CIA sites before they were transferred to Guantanamo, subjected to experimentation, human experimentation on their bodies, on their minds. Um, and they don't have any access, to right, to family or the outside world other than you. Right. And that is another right? way, right, um, that it's, it, it's different. Um, these are, you know, in, in prison in the United States, um, part of... You I mean, get like a week, you know, an hour, a week or something, through, right? Through family connection, right, through right. human connection, um, through those kinds of ways. And the people mm-hmm. at Guantanamo have not seen their families in person for 16 years. Um, mm-hmm. Every few months now, they get a, uh, a video call through the Red Cross, uh, sort of a Skype call with a family, if that family can be, is in an area of the world 
um, where, you know, an internet connection can work and a video Skype call can work. But they haven't um, had anything more than sort of, a, you know, seeing a family member on a screen for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think, you know, again, in terms of what do they do today, it's, it's the sort of mundane, mind-numbingness of prison in many ways, but on layered on top of this whole history of um, brutality, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, of, of torture um, yeah. and, and of Pardon. extreme deprivation um, that I think is forgotten. Yeah, Pardis, we have to um, we have to break again, and and I want to ask you the question so that you can uh, prepare your thoughts when we come back. Your relationship with them, then, with these human beings who have been so, and I, I don't know, I'm, I don't want to fill in the words, I don't want to assume, but I would like to have a sense of how these men relate to you, how they make use of you, how they connect with you. Okay, so we're going to take a break, a brief break for now. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. 
So, parties to be held in a place uh, for 10, 15, 16 years, no access to your family after having been uh, tortured and continuing to be uh, <laughs> mistreated. My question to you is what, tell us, what do you observe of how they, how they manage and, and then their relationship with you? How do they turn to you? Um, in, in terms of how they manage, I mean, I was thinking, again, just in terms of uh, the lack of access to the prison, I wish that you could, you know, to speak for them. I, I feel like in this debate on Guantanamo, it is constantly lawyers speaking for the detainees, and the debate is so much between lawyers and the government and our word against the governments. And that's because the men themselves have been canceled out of this debate because they are because of all the secrecy and the barriers to access to them. So I just have to say that, which is I'm, I'm, I wish so much in every interview I give that you could just ask um, a detainee this question in some way, or even a former detainee, um, but you can't. So, you know, in terms of what I observe, I think they would say their faith, um, their Islamic faith is, is essential um, to their survival. It's, um, just on a spiritual level and on a community level. Um, every person mm. who has ever been held at Guantanamo is Muslim, um, and now they can pray together. And, you know, at, way back um, for years, they were held in isolation, and they didn't, couldn't have that sense of community. Um, but they knew that each person was in his cell praying, and I think that um, in terms of community and just individual um, individual peace and strength has been tremendous. Um, I think also just in whatever ways they've been able to find it, um, human connection. And this is where I think lawyers have in part played a role. You know, we are the only people, and you were saying, what is the relationship to me? Um, I'm sort of sometimes struck by what I'm about to say, which is how extreme it is, even though it's the reality, which is I'm the only person my clients have seen for 16 years who is not part of the military uh, or the government. Um, mm-hmm. and the only person who is showing up for them uh, who isn't part of that system and who is trying to advocate for them. So that brings with it um, both a connection um, and... Um, you know, I think in some ways I've been, it's just dependent on the person and on the time, both for them and for me in this work. I mean, you know, it's changed from my, my relationship to the work has changed a lot over time, too. I think at times I've been only because, again, I've been the only person who's had access to uh, the individual, a, a lifeline of, of sorts. Um, you know, there's been a certain dependence at times. I think um, there also is a huge responsibility to try to do something with what you see, do something with it in court, say something about it publicly. And that's where, again, um, you know, we run up against all the barriers to our ability to do that. Our hands are really tied in terms of bringing out what Mm -hmm. we see and observe um, with respect to, you know, conditions, um, a person's health, whatever the crisis might be. Um, 
the levels of secrecy. So every time I go to Guantanamo, everything my client, the person says, is presumed to be classified, is presumed to be secret by the government. And everything I write down has to undergo screening um, by the government. And what comes out is a censored version of what I've written down. Mm -hmm. Um, So everything is filtered and censored. And that is, it's extremely hard as an advocate and then also just as a person to see things, to bear witness to things and, and then and know that you're the only person really for that detainee, for that prisoner who can actually do anything for him and then to not be able to really um, to fully advocate. Um, it's, it's, uh, it can really weigh on you. And there are obviously massive life implications for the person, you know, as, mm-hmm. as the only advocate um, yeah, they have. Well, um, I can also so, imagine that that the you, you said it's it's hard, which is an understatement. You know, the where the work goes in you and what you have to bear. Have you been? I don't know if you feel comfortable telling us, but have you been changed by the work? Um, from what you have had to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, anyone who's done this sort of work for 11 years and put my colleagues in this too or, or lawyers in the United States who work with people on death row or people serving effective death sentences, you know, decades in prison or life in prison. Um, anyone who does this work for a long time, I think it changes you, it gets at you, it should. Um, I think what's become what's sort of more on my mind now is how do you sustain yourself. And by that, I mean, I think you have to have hope um, that what you're doing might have results or might achieve something in whatever way, however long it takes. Um, What I mean by (laughs) holding on to to hope. Yeah. Where do you, Pardis, find it? And how do you hold on to it? Well, I think that's part of the process. Um, (laughs) Honestly, I mean, if I sort of... um, look at just in isolation Guantanamo and the state of the United States right now in terms of the administration and its policies and the scale of incarceration and the scale of violence and war. And like you were saying, we're interrogating two-year-olds whose feet don't touch the ground and, you know, let's say sit at chair, mm-hmm. tables, legal tables in court. I mean, that's where we are. There are thousands of children, thousands of children in tents and detention centers um, torn apart from their families. So I think it is real to say um, the problems are massive and overwhelming. Um, So I think as an advocate or any human being who wants to sort of make change, it's hard. It's a process to think about where we are and maybe pull back a little bit and try to zoom out and and take a broader view. and sort of see things, try to see things and understand things at a deeper, le- deeper level and, and try to adjust and change your strategies. I mean, I think for on an issue like Guantanamo where there's such a long history where we've been litigating and doing advocacy in the media, with Congress, with foreign governments, we've tried everything for 16 years. It's sort of crazy to just do the same things over and over again. So I think as advocates, we've, we have to adjust and think of new ways of trying to reach people 
um, and, you know, and maintain mm-hmm. some hope for what we're doing. But mm-hmm. it's all a process. I think that's just honest. Well, um, right, but by the way, I have to uh, I have to remember to to say, out of eight hundred original, you know, right. men, forty remain. So you guys have done tremendous work, right? I mean, sure. seven hundred and sixty right. men got released. Now, what what happens to them when they get released is a whole other show. But <laughs> they have nowhere else right. to go back to for most for the most part. But please, before we we say goodbye, tell me tell me one thing that you learned about the human condition, about people from, from, from flying down there, from doing this work that you can share with me? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a huge question. I mean, I, you know, resilience, um, resilience, both in the beautiful ways and also in the ways that, um, that are very hard. I mean, I think people survive in ways that we can glorify and that I think are beautiful. And I think it also, they can survive in sort of um, ways that are distorted, you know, from the natural human condition. Um, So I sort of have seen both sides of it. Um, That I think, you know, the instinct to survive is um, innate and it's, I think I've just been thinking a lot about um, how strong that is. And for all the times that I've said, if I were in my client's circumstances, I wouldn't make it. I mean, I think I would and many of us would because I think that instinct to survive and try to hold on in whatever ways you can is just um, incredibly strong. And I think you don't mm-hmm. know it until it's really tested. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I've and you, seen that you mentioned- in, in my clients. You mentioned earlier, and I infer that the way that they these men manage to survive is through their connection with each other, the sense of connection that they have with one another in that community. Yeah, to some extent, each other, although there's a grotesque side of it too, which is when you just think of you know a group of 40 men who've been held on a patch of land on an island for 16 years and what that does to your mind. So I I guess Mm -hmm. I go back and forth between the beauty and the grotesqueness of what the government is doing and has done to people. Um, But connection absolutely has sustained them, connection with each other, connection with their advocates, and then I think in their minds, you know, holding on to family um, or whatever it is on the outside that is sort of a lifeline for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, we are coming to a close of the hour, although I feel I can spend another 10 hours learning yeah. about them. <laughs> but I hope that for you out there, please check out Center for Constitutional Right. Um, I am I am a fan. Uh, they're not paying me to say this. And I'm just in <laughs> awe of the work that you all are doing. And I hope that you listeners from all over the world have a little bit of a taste of what these lawyers are trying to do. They are really the best of our wounded selves. And um, I'm just reminded, I saw a Chekhov uh, play last weekend, and it ended with one of the characters saying something along this line, I want to end on. And it echoes what Pardis is saying, which is, you know, what can we do? You know, we, we must live out our lives. Yes, we shall live. We shall live all through the endless 
days ahead of us, we shall bear patiently the burdens that fate imposes on us. And how we live on, how we bear that that burden and that gift of life is really the task every day for the men in Guantanamo, for you, Pradis, for me, for all of you out there. And I guess um, thank you, Pradis, for what you do and for coming on. And um, my wish for us all, for you all out there, is to bear the days with a lot of joy and grace. And I hope to find you again here next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.